0: Welcome to Women of Marvel. I'm Anjali Crochet.
1: I'm Judy Stevens, And I'm Ellie Pyle. And I
0: am excited. I felt like I needed to come back in and just said I again. It was a great cadence. But I am actually very excited, y'all. I got to talk to one of my absolute favorite editors, Bobby Chase. So if you don't know who Bobby Chase is, you should. And you should read all of the amazing things that she was able to touch while she was here at Marvel. She's worked on books like G.I. Joe, Captain America, Iron Man, She-Hulk, Ghostwriter, and way more than I can list here because we have to get to the interview. You know, Bobby spent almost two decades at Marvel, including some time as an editor-in-chief. Now, I say it like that because this was during a period when instead of one editor-in-chief of the whole company, there were actually five editors-in-chief at Marvel. Each was in charge of a different group, like Spider-Man or Mutant. Bobby was in charge of Marvel Edge. Now, as the name kind of hints to, Marvel Edge was an imprint that published more edgier or grown-up titles, like Daredevil, Ghost Rider, and The Hulk. In the series that she edited both at Marvel Edge and in the rest of her time at Marvel, one of the cool things about Bobby's work, and this is the thing why I'm so excited, is that... She worked on some particularly important issues that were very personal to her, members of the staff, and like writers and artists. And two of the issues we're going to cover in our chat is Alpha Flight number 106, where North Star becomes Marvel's first superhero to explicitly come out as gay in response to the AIDS crisis. And The Incredible Hulk, number 420, one of my favorite comics, when Hulk's good friend Jim Wilson actually dies of AIDS, and they deal with this a lot and the conflict it causes for Hulk in that story. In that one, I love the fact that Bobby did something so very special, which is when she became one of my favorite editors, is that she made the space open on the letters pages to allow Marvel staff, artists, and writers to write notes and to tell stories about how they were impacted or how their loved ones had been impacted by the AIDS epidemic at the time. Those pages actually inspired me in Marvel's Voices Identity to bring in the artist and the writers and Marvel staff into the letters pages as well to talk about what identity meant to them as Asian, Asian Asian-American, or Pacific Islander, particularly during 2020. And so it was really important for me to talk to her about that choice and all the dope stuff that she was able to do.
2: You were talking about the letters page, and I'm thinking back about how many women really connected with each other on the letters page and how sort of Bobby really continued that. Even today, you know, the editors still talk about how much they love working on the letters pages and why it connects so well to fans, even in this modern day world of technology. I mean, it's so powerful that Bobby used that as a space letters pages were actually how I realized the job of comic book
1: editor existed. When I was a kid, I remember one of the first comics I ever bought reading the letters page and someone had found a continuity error and got a no prize. And, you know, that really kind of clued me into, oh, there's this person who is sort of in charge of all of this. And that is a job that someone could do one day. And yeah, I loved writing letters pages when I was an editor. And they're a great way to not just connect with fans on your standard monthly issues, but also if you are doing a story that touches upon something that's going to be particularly sensitive, a letters page can be a great way to kind of acknowledge and help contextualize that. Specifically, we did an issue of Daredevil that dealt with postpartum depression. And we were able to kind of reach out to an organization and have them read the issue and then have them write something for the letters page that could help guide people to resources. And we got so many letters back after that A lot of which were from men saying, I had no idea what my wife was going through, or I see experiences that my wife or partner was having, you know, represented in this story. And this is something people don't talk about. We got women writing in to say, we're so glad to see this represented here. And so they remain a place where people can connect, you know, even today. I love that. And I love the fact that we
0: talk a lot about Marvel being the world outside our window, right? And we talk a lot about this idea of social economic problems, epidemics, pandemics, and the different issues that mean a lot. Like we've Marvel's had comic book issues about apartheid, about the civil rights movement, about, you know, immigration and deportation. And one of the things that I think is so amazing is that the world outside our window is not limited to the trees and the streets and the buildings it really is reflective of who we are as people and I love the fact that there are ways to blend in issues that are important to us like there was a great story that came out with Miles Morales where a building falls down and they they're actually addressing a slumlord And I think it's important that we do have those kind of issues that are relatable and, like, do impact folks' lives every single day.
1: Well, stories revolve around conflict. So it's not just a matter of reflecting the nice parts of people's daily lives outside our window. It's digging into those things that are going to provoke complicated emotions. It's digging into the messiest stuff because that's where impactful stories come from. And very often, you know, those kind of messy conflicts that people are most passionate about are the ones that reflect the issues of the moment in which the story is being told.
2: Yeah. And the world outside your window also showcases that just like Bobby, there were many women in the office telling these stories. This misconception that women did read comics or that women didn't work in comics is completely false because you look at someone like Bobby who was there for a decade telling the many stories that she did and the impact that she did along with the many women that she worked with.
1: It's so vital to have a variety of perspectives because that brings you just such a variety of core issues people are passionate about that can then become stories.
0: And it also makes richer stories. And I think that's more texture richness with that diversity is just it's what I love about comics. So I'm really excited. Let's talk to Bobby.
3: I was at Marvel for 17 years, and then most recently DC Comics for, for 10. And in between that, I worked for a, a children's book publisher called Stabenfeld, which was a Scandinavian publisher. I was an English major uh, with a theater minor in design, set of costumes. My first job out of college was working for a fashion designer. I don't recommend that industry to anybody, depending on where you are in your life. But I answered an ad which is how one got a job back in the day when I first started for a monthly graphic publication. I thought, well, that's interesting with a design background and an English major, literature that I always thought would lead me to publishing. I thought, wow, that could be anything. It could be Car and Driver. It could be Vogue. And it turned out to be a Marvel. And the editor who interviewed me and hired me, Bob Budigansky, said, are you surprised? And I said, yeah, but I'm, I'm game. I don't know much about comic books, except when I grew up, I read... Archie's and Richie Rich and Sabrina and all those, but never superhero comics. So as part of the editing process, he gave me a Fantastic Four letters page to read for those people who remember letters pages in the comics back in the day. And at the end, I I finished editing it, proofing it. And he said, do you have any questions? I said, yeah, is it okay that I've never heard of the Fantastic Four? And he said, we're not necessarily looking for people with preconceived notions, about what comic books are. So I thought, well, that's cool. Certainly the office is filled with fans and that's all great. Need them. But certain fans come in and say, are they precious about the characters, which editors cannot be. Editors can't be precious about screwing with the beloved characters. So I've had a really fun career of screwing with the characters.
0: I love that. So you started your career at Marvel 1985 as an assistant editor for Marvel's special projects department after this amazing conversation where you're like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. I don't have to know all the things. Mm-hmm. What does that entail? Like we've talked to a number of editors, and I always am just very interested in what really was your job in
3: 1985? Oh, yeah. I thought I'd stick around for a year and just try it. And <laughs> I ended up being there a good chunk of of life. So, the first thing I worked on in special projects, special projects got all sorts of things like we did deals with outside companies, we did custom comics, things like Kool Aid Man, and we also did deals with Sweet Valley High to do comic books for them. But the first thing I worked on was Secret Wars 2, which was a great way to get a crash course in the Marvel characters because they were all in there. (laughs) So I did my own research on the side as I was working on Secret Wars, and it actually turned out to be a lot of fun. I didn't particularly love love it, because I didn't have the background of the characters. And so I was still thinking, okay, well, this medium isn't for me, but I can certainly appreciate it. And it took me a while to find books that were for me. But Mm. when I did, that was a real revelation and a joy considering, you know, my background in English literature, which was a a concentration in 19th century. So, you know, ask me about Dickens, I I can tell you, or, uh, you know, Chaucer. I was reading Chaucer in Middle English, but yet never looked at modern comic books and uh, the mythos. Although when I was a kid, I was a huge mythology fan. Bullfinches was my Bible. (laughs) And uh, so finding a new mythology was a wonderful thing to do.
0: And I love that because there's Even talking about the classics, there is always this line between relatability, right? Which is very key and core to what Marvel is. Like the world outside your window and making stories Marvel, but also like providing this feeling of escape and being transported to the reader, you know, for you as an editor and with that background and also learning why you were building it, how did you get into your rhythm and start striking that balance as an assistant editor and then as an editor between reality and escape, but also keeping it Marvel? And why do you think that balance is important?
3: Oh, that's a great question. So it's all so relatable. Marvel characters are all so relatable because they're characters first, they're humans first. And of course, a lot of people talk about that. But when talking to writers about story driven characters versus character-driven characters. Marvel characters really stand out as being able to carry character-driven stories. And that's just the heart of where these narratives should be, I think, and, and their power, and the power of the Marvel characters is that they're friends and they're humans and they have problems and, and they're so relatable and they're families and they're made family units. Working with writers to strike the right balance and telling the most human stories possible, I just found so amazingly appealing. I love that relationship. I've always loved teaching, which was a very important thing back in those early days of Marvel. We had editor's school and all the assistants and the associates used to go, and we all took turns teaching courses, and it's very satisfying. And also developing writer's workshops with the editorial staff. And just learning how everything services the narrative and how you build the universe and how you have the illusion of change (laughs) (laughs) with the the characters telling these meaningful stories that are impactful to readers without really moving too quickly is such an interesting balancing act. And I loved working with established writers who could teach me things as well as new writers who I could help develop their careers. I mean, I, I find that very satisfying.
0: I love it. Well, are there any particular moments or stories that you felt particularly proud of? I know there's a couple that I want to gush about, but like, were there standouts for you personally that you're particularly proud of?
3: That's really hard to say, just because I've edited thousands of comic books at this point. I was really proud of my working relationship with the talent on The Incredible Hulk. That was over 10 years of Working with that character and taking him from a mindless character into exploring the brain of Bruce Banner and the body of the Hulk, I really enjoyed that run of things. I learned a lot from Larry Hama, the writer and creator of G.I. Joe and creator of a lot of the characters. I had a lot of good mentors. Some highlights were developing new things like the Star Trek line at Marvel, which had nothing to do with Marvel characters, but being allowed by Paramount to go off and do new properties. We were very proud of that. Yeah, that's well, that's just some of them, but it was more about the working relationships, I'd say for me, and doing the best stories in the time allotted, you know, everything moves so quickly, of course, you know, in comic books and just dealing with that and making the best books that we could.
0: It's so wonderful to hear people's passion for the storytelling. What is it about storytelling through the medium of comics? As we've established, this is not exactly where you thought you would end up, but yeah. what is it about storytelling through the medium of comics that continue to draw you back
3: in? It's funny, I, I left Marvel and I always thought, oh, I'm never going to go back into the comic book business and I'm not working for Marvel. I just can't see myself going to anywhere else. But really, you've, at that point, you've, we've all picked up this arcane body of knowledge and to have it go to waste is is a hard thing to do. <laughs> the combination of prose and visual storytelling is just so fascinating how you can leave so much to the art to tell the story. I think that's one thing I've always been a champion of is making sure that, okay, so writers are are the ones who talk the most, but don't discount the artists just because they're quieter, because really they are also the storytellers and they're doing all of the heavy lifting. And they're just amazing at what they do in terms of just using visuals, creating these worlds and telling these stories through panel to panel narration, storytelling. I think that was my favorite part of my job in some ways was you know, opening up those packages daily with art inside and just uh, feeling like every time we opened a Federal Express package, it was just Christmas.
0: <laughs> Comics have the ability to present these interesting dynamics of what's happening in the real world right and mm. one of the things i love about some of my favorites of yours comics like i'm sitting here looking at the incredible hulk 420 it's like on my desk <laughs> i like hunted down the single floppy of it so i could physically have it It's interesting because there's this infusion of what's happening outside of our windows that happens in comics, right? Whether it's Mm -hmm. apartheid or it's civil rights or it's the AIDS epidemic. And you were kind of known for being at the forefront of some of those issues being brought into comics. Like, was this a conscious effort on your part? Or were you just like, no, this is just a good story. We're just going to tell it. People are going to get
3: it. It was both a conscious effort. On my part, anybody who worked with me knew that I would be receptive to doing stories like that. It's funny. You look back now. I look back at those stories now, and they have a they have a different meaning than they had when we put them out. I mean, everything was done to advance the narrative. You know, 420. You know, it's all about the Sam Wilson story, and you know, we were all people were losing friends to AIDS. You know, Chris Cooper. He was. I remember when he was my assistant at the time. He would. I had to stop asking him when he came in with a suit because it it just meant he was going to another funeral. And so people really, really felt the need to add those stories. And it was tricky because at the time we had a president and a head of PR, you know, actually the head of PR told me, my job is to keep Marvel Comics out of the news that is my primary (laughs) directive, which is certainly (laughs) different than comic books nowadays, where they're more accepted and where, you know, Hollywood has embraced it. And that's been an interesting change in the comic book industry in the last couple of decades. But she also told me that I had to check my Northeastern sensibilities at the door. She said, Bobby, you have to remember, you don't represent the feelings of everybody in this country. You know, you're just one person, you know, living in Manhattan. You just have to remember the rest of the world. And I thought to myself, you know, as a young person, I feel the same way today. I want people to understand my point of view as much as anything. I don't think that we should count out people's points of view just because not everybody in the country and the world is going to agree with us. So we were still trying to tell the story in the best way possible, considering the audience, what would sell best, Be the most satisfying read.
0: And it's interesting to me because I remember looking up Jim Wilson for the first time and going, Whoa, wait a minute. I got to go know this story. Right. And I remember going to find the story. And this is actually one of the reasons why I got the physical copy. So I'd read the story a number of times, I'd read the digital. And it wasn't until I had talked to Chris. We'd interviewed Chris for Marvel's Voices Pride, and I I did a piece on him, and he did a a great piece on the X-Men and his love of the X-Men, which just, my heart sparkles. And we talked a lot about another book that you know I'm going to ask about Alpha Flight at some point, but when he described this letters page, which I hadn't seen, which was actually the reason why I went to get the signal myself, Mm -hmm. is that when he described this letters page to me, and... He was talking about exactly what you were saying, this idea that so much was going on in the world around us. And for you to make the conscious choice to go, this letters page, this is what needs to happen. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what you're saying about point of view, right? And I read it for the first time and I went, wow, she sat there and made a conscious choice to make a statement. Yeah, that's pretty incredible in a comic book, which for those of us who love comic books, like we get the unique and special power it has, but you really made that conscious effort. You know, how do you even get to a point where you're like, we're going to dedicate this page to people who have been impacted?
3: Well, so many people wanted to talk. So many people had things to say, people that I knew and we could give them that space. I remember the reviews at the time were so powerful and they were so poignant Thinking back on it, I know I wouldn't have been in a rush to out a gay character in the Marvel Universe and then immediately kill them, because now it's a cliché. At the time, it was more meaningful because there was very little gay representation in the, in the media, but I'd just gone back and read it and I had forgotten that there's a gay character in there who says, man, this gay equals AIDS thing really burns me. And it was another gay character, you know, Hector, who was a gay man without AIDS. And I, I can't remember if, if that was a conscious effort on our part, if that's just something that Peter covered because it was important for people to realize we weren't just there to, you know, kill a gay person. But, yeah, we spent the letters page letting people in the office tell the stories of the friends they had lost. So it was a bit of a catharsis for all of us. Chris Cooper's was meaningful to me because he talked about his friend Augustine. I do remember that. And I just remember Augustine so fondly because he had a very distinctive voice. And he used to leave... Voicemails for Chris on Chris's answering machine all the time. And then one of those times, Chris was wearing a dark suit and I asked him, he said, Augustine died. And I just remember that hit me more than anybody up to that point who I had known who died of AIDS. Of it was so personal to Chris. Yeah.
0: <laughs> mm. I think that's so powerful because. You talk about this idea, well, the reality that comics have evolved, right? What has it been like to see from kind of those moments to be able to see the evolution of comics over the last several decades? And how do you think it's changed?
3: Well, now it's that representation is the norm. I see comic books as a whole getting better and doing better with representation. Certainly from the time I started to now, in terms of the makeup of the creative teams and the editorial teams across all companies there's better representation and i think the stories have gone there i've had people tell me before well why do you need to do that because i mean the x men they're really all about you know being different in this world can't you just take that metaphor and leave it alone and i don't yeah, know i think that you can still tell powerful non didactic stories about people putting in all of that diversity so that when readers read these stories, they can see themselves in it and not have to smack them over the head by saying, I am gay or I am, you know, <laughs> as we perhaps did in the past.
0: <laughs> but I think also like it leaves the way for non-binary characters. It leads the way for strong women characters, strong women of color characters. It leads that way for representation and We've talked to a number of women editors and assistants editors on Women of Marvel. And for you, having seen this industry for as long as you have over the decades, do you feel like that vocal role that you probably played as one of the few at that time, what does it feel like to see that evolution and how have you seen the industry kind of shift even with
3: who's at the table? I certainly have a pride in being part of the process. And I have some pride in bringing people to the table with diverse voices. It's all a big group effort. I mean, that's the wonderful thing. That's another one of the wonderful things about the working process of comic books. It's not just a writer sitting alone in their home giving you 30,000 words. It's a team of people all working together, figuring out character, coming up with stories together, visual representations, and... Written representations—it's not nothing's done in a vacuum—and I think that is contributing to quicker movement now on bringing diversity to the forefront than it was 35 years ago. If that makes sense,
0: it does. I mean, it's interesting because when I talked to Chris Cooper about Alpha Flight 106, one of the things he said to me, and it kind of stuck in my head, he was like, "No, oh, we
3: just kind of looked at each other and we're like." It's just time. We should just do it. Yep. <laughs> it's easier to ask for business than it is to get permission. <laughs> I think we both knew the answer. If we'd brought it up to the, the higher ups would have been, no, you can't do that. Because <laughs> they pretty much made it clear that that would have been the case. <laughs> but yeah, we were game.
0: <laughs> I mean, what did this book mean at the time of its publishing? Because you could not have predicted what it would mean moving forward. Like, I don't think anyone could have.
3: Oh, sure. It actually still surprises me to a certain extent, because it's just one of many now. But yeah, I, I forget how much it stood alone at the time, specifically Alpha Flight 106, more so than Hulk 420. Yeah, it was almost a throwaway and <laughs> how it got handled <laughs> in the story, you know that I am gay. In context, perhaps a little didactic, but in those early days, Those were the gay stories we told about AIDS because it was so prevalent, you know, as we've said. I liked that one of the characters calls Northstar out for being a coward, for not coming out. And that was something that we got to talk about as well. Certainly there have been others who have taken the ball and run with it and done an even better job than we did on those early stories, which makes me so happy. More interesting representation now and so many interesting creators to talk to and to hear from, I just think it's all great. I think it's amazing
0: to me because I kind of hear in almost in your joy, which I love hearing, like there's this passion for good storytelling, but also there's kind of this root ethos, and correct me if I'm wrong, of everyone's story deserves to be heard. POV is extremely important and representation shouldn't be just a person sitting in the background who is a different color it should be actual representation yes talk to me about where this for you is kind of rooted and why it's so important as an editor because I think editors have a special 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 place in this process of being able to foster and incubate
3: and bring these ideas to life yeah in my case the background was I, I had to socialist Democrat parents. So the discussions around the dinner table were frequently political, frequently charged. I grew up in a community that was um, pretty conservative. My parents were registered Republicans in Dutchess County, New York, which is where you know Franklin Dillon or Roosevelt grew up, lived, was governor and couldn't get elected in his own town. <laughs> yeah. And my parents were registered Republicans just so they could vote in the primaries and, and have a voice because otherwise they wouldn't be able to. So our you know local Republican would come to the door every year and say, I hope you'll vote for so-and-so and so-and-so. And, so-and. and my parents would very nicely say, thank you. We'll take that into consideration and then completely ignore him. And then I went to an all-women's college, which I wouldn't recommend for my daughter because I think times have changed. But at the time, I thought it was important because women really had a voice in the classroom and didn't defer to men. And then went into mm. an all-male industry where it was a bit of a, a shocker uh, <laughs> to be surrounded by men and to work in a very male-dominated, male-driven industry with books for men at the time. And I was, whenever I would suggest that we you know, do something for women, I was told, well, that's not our core market. That's going to take a major, major change in how we publish. And it took a lot of years before that question was taken seriously. And we were then doing graphic novels for a, a more female audience.
0: I love that you mentioned that because one of the things that I do love about your career is that you served as editor-in-chief from 1994 to 1995, the highest level a woman editor has reached at Marvel. One, how do you even approach that, right? Because yeah, it is a field that is dominated by men with a lot of stories. I've had a lot of conversations with women artists and women writers. They're like, yeah, I read Archie. And I read Sweet Valley High, and I read The Sunday Funnies, Mm -hmm. and then I got into superhero comics later in life, right? So there is also this, like, big jump where you are around a lot of writers and sometimes editors who are precious about these characters who have been reading this since they were five years old or younger. What was it like stepping into that role? And did the knowledge of you being this fresh eye, this fresh perspective who also had a handle on these characters and really
3: done the work, changed the way you approached that role. It's interesting. It wasn't appreciated by all my outside knowledge or my lack of knowledge in comic books and the fact that I was getting anywhere actually pissed off some people. I couldn't imagine. I'm sure you couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was given the Incredible Hulk because the sales were terrible. I mean, they were mm-hmm. crap. People thought they couldn't get anywhere with that character. It was kind of a throwaway of something not terribly important, and it was given G.I. Joe because it was outside of continuity. A friend at the time told me, you're not going to get anywhere unless you make yourself a little place in this world and show that you can do it, and you're going to have to create it from whole cloth. And out of that came the Marvel Edge Group. Howard Mackie had already put in a pitch for Ghost Rider, And it was a new Ghost Rider. And we thought, well, I started brainstorming with a bunch of people there to take the horror characters who nothing was being done with them and bring them into a line. And so, you know, we created a whole group with Darkhold and Spirits of Vengeance, which was the second Ghost Rider title, and Mobius, the Living Vampire. So
0: you created the Edge group. And it's interesting you mention all of those titles because these are titles that are now movies, These are titles that are, like, really big names, and people are in love
3: with these
0: characters, right? So you kind of carve this
3: niche out. We did. And the books were selling better than the X-Men, too, initially. I mean, the sales were amazing. And that's how the Marvel Edge group got started into its own group with its own sets of line editors. And we were expanding titles, and we were doing our own crossovers, and it became its own little mini-universe within the greater Marvel universe. And that's when I started getting more characters, like, okay, she can be trusted with the Avengers. I was editing Iron Man and Captain America and Doctor Strange, and that helped my perception within the company. I'm still not the person who can tell you what happened in what issue and in what year. (laughs) There are people for that. I've never been that person. (laughs)
0: But I can tell you the exact story arc that got us there.
3: There you go. Exactly. Remember the story points.
0: (laughs) So you carve this niche out and it's very clear that there were characters that were chosen. There were issues that were chosen. Even like when looking at the evolution of Bruce Banner throughout this Hulk run in this new way where he does get these layers and he becomes this onion and he's, he's holding emotional story, which is very different than the initial Hulk that most people knew. Yeah. Your next step then, you, you become editor-in-chief.
3: Like, How do you approach that role? Well, that just meant an extra layer. I was still editing some titles because I've never really wanted to be that far from editing. That's first love. But I do love content creation. I love business development. So, you know, getting to work with my own budgets and publishing plans, I love all that stuff. (laughs) But I was still in the room with the creators and coming up with the big stories and having a lot of fun with that. The big problem when they made five little companies out of one is that it wasn't Well thought out. I was actually not a huge fan of it. I'm so thrilled that they gave me the promotion and you know, I was certainly had a healthy budget, I think second to the X-Men at that point. But I I thought it was not well served that the universe had gotten split up like that. When one of the major strengths at Marvel is that there's that ripple effect when one thing happens in a book, it gets reflected in others and and that characters you know, just naturally interact with other characters outside of their core. And a lot of that got lost in the translation. So I was actually one of the people who said, look, I don't think this can sustain itself. And I think the company should go back together. You know, putting myself out of that job. But that was fine.
0: It was fine. One of the things I also love about your career is that as an editor, and as an editor-in-chief, and then doing talent development, you have really seen so many careers start, take off because artists and writers are a unique part of this, right? They are freelancers. They don't work in-house. They jump from company to company. But I think every single editor that works with them touches a little bit about who they are and what they are to become. Why go into talent development? You could have just stayed in books. You could have just stayed working with one writer and one artist, but you're like, nah, I want to go develop more people out here get more people into the process like what was it about that role that called to you new voices
3: new voices are so important we have to have new voices and attracting people who wouldn't normally think that this is something for them as I discovered when I first started I think is a very important part of the industry and I love the teaching aspect of it too and I love being a mentor and I don't I don't know how many editors there are out there who won't say there's incredible job satisfaction with finding new talent. I'm very proud of the new talent that I found and cultivated as I know so many editors are. And I just love going to comic book conventions and having people tell me, you gave me my first job. And you know, maybe I'd forgotten that, maybe I never knew it, but uh, that's a very <laughs> cool thing.
0: One of the things I just wanna kind of cap this off is that there is so much power in bringing real life to comics and comics to real life is there something you feel like has been a lesson you've learned in being able to tell these stories because i think the other thing we forget is it's 22 pages right if you're lucky it's 22 pages and you're sometimes dealing with extremely important, extremely sensitive issues like HIV and AIDS and coming out and dealing with losing a loved one or recovering from grief. And there's always just this magical way somehow of finding the right spot to touch it. You know, have you learned anything or what lessons have you learned in being able to do that and the importance of being able to do that within the comic book medium?
3: There are certainly good ways to do it and bad ways to do it introducing things in a natural way so that they service the story and that the story doesn't necessarily become about, I am the new character that is this or this and that's different. I've seen some writers do it in a very heavy-handed way and I think there are ways to do it. If you go back to the X-Men point I was trying to make earlier, You know, I had somebody tell me, well, you don't need to have an LGBTQ representation in the X-Men because those characters really are about that in a metaphorical sense. Well, yes and no. That doesn't mean you shouldn't represent the world with these characters. It's like another editor and I put together a list of editors' checklist. I used to encourage the editorial staff to, you know, put it on the wall next to their computer or some of them even had it on their screens. Just in terms of a story, have these things, and one of them is... 50% women in your crowd scenes, you know, things that people talk about in films. Just remember, this is the breakup of the world. This is how many people of this persuasion and how many people of this persuasion. And Make sure that the people in your world look like the representation in the real world without worrying about having to do it metaphorically or without doing it in a didactic manner. Just be natural. Sometimes you just really have to have that story that's going to move people, that's going to move you, because it's something you're dealing with in your lives. And that's where we were with the AIDS epidemic. It's just something that was just needed to be talked about. Mm -hmm. I love it.
0: And Bobby, just so you know, like you actually inspired me. So Marvel's Voices is an anthology comic line that we do. And we were doing Marvel's Voices Identity that came out a couple months ago. And we really wanted to make this statement about AAPI 8 because that book was Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islanders. And one of the things that we specifically do with those books is that we bring in a guest to do an introduction to like lay the foundation for the books. And that person is generally of the demographic for the book. So like, we had a, a Filipina writer come in and do an introduction and really talk about how she wasn't really into superheroes until she got older and she realized how relatable the stories were. But the one thing I love about that book is that at the end, we turned the letters pages into a question for the writers and the artists and the staff at Marvel and asked them, what does identity mean to you? And it was so powerful to have the staff people have their voices heard, particularly during that time because it was shortly after the shootings in Atlanta. And immediately after everything that had been happening because of the pandemic, because of COVID, and so much of the confusion about what Asian, Asian American and Pacific Islander culture is because it is so vast. So I just definitely wanted to say like the work that you did and those ripple effects and those choices really have done a lot. So thank you.
3: Thank you. That's very nice to hear. And, and <laughs> that sounds wonderful. It sounds really wonderful. I'm glad you got to have similar catharsis that we allowed ourselves back in the day as well. That sounds really wonderful.
0: Hopefully we can have more. Yeah, I agree. Stories are better when there's a human side to them. That is very true. Thank you again so much to Bobby for coming on Women of Marvel. Honestly, I don't fangirl a lot, y'all, but I really am a huge fan, and I'm sure you could tell during the conversation that I was very excited to talk to her. Next week, though, I am excited about another thing that we're going to be talking about that I think everybody on the show is pretty excited about. Judy, you're actually going to be talking about feminism.
2: Yeah, actually, this is a topic that's come up many times on the podcast, but we're incredibly excited because we are welcoming two women who wrote for Marvel back in the day, two of some of the first women to ever be credited for a Marvel story, including the first woman to ever write female characters. And that is Linda Fight, who wrote Claws of the Cat, and Jean Thomas, who wrote Night Nurse. In 1972, in this period of time where second wave feminism was this amazing movement in time as we sort of questioned women's space in the home and in the workplace and in society as a whole. So I'm really excited because they're both phenomenal women and they did so much when they worked at comics for the three of us to be here now. So tune in for that episode next week. And while you're waiting, you should probably go pre-order my book. Would love that. Super Visible, The Story of Women of Marvel. Continuously plugs. But we will see you guys next week. Until
1: then, this is Marvel. Your universe.
2: Woman of Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Isabel Robertson, Jasmine Estrada, Ellie Pyle, Judy Stevens. Oh, that's me! And Angelique Roche. Our development manager is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen, and our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Listen weekly on SiriusXM and on Marvel Podcast Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.